Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hello, good morning, good Saturday, good, I don't know what time it is where you're listening to this. I've got a pretty cool episode coming up just now. Well, this is it. This is the episode. It's with my friends Erin Smith-Levin, the former Scientologist you've heard from before, and Carlin Borisenko, who you've also heard before. She was the sort of extreme devout libertarian. We spoke about uh, that town in New Hampshire where, um, because they didn't, libertarian basically means, for anyone who doesn't know, I should just say, that uh, there's basically no rules, no taxes. People just do their own thing and leave each other alone. It's the opposite of authoritarianism in many senses. But in this town, because no one was sort of taking care of things and forcing people to pay taxes and stuff, nobody took care of the bear patrol and the bears uh, ate people and ate their animals and stuff like that. So uh, anyway, Carlin and Erin and I are going to be talking today about cults, of course, and how, what, to what extent cults and ideologies are found in politics so we do a two-parter it's a couple of hours it's three friends chatting three friends with very different views of course uh carlin and i disagree on a lot of political stuff but it's always quite fun talking to her hope you guys enjoy this one please do leave a review on apple um what else can you do patreon all those that you know the stuff you know the drill and next week's episodes we'll be talking about nixium and scientology we'll be well i was supposed to be talking with a psychopath called kanika batra and she just didn't turn up and then blocked me on instagram so you know that's dealing with psychopaths isn't it so i'm going to find out who else we can talk to coming up in the next month or so are helen lewis feminist and author and uh, interesting person in the uk emma thorne who's a popular youtube atheist and jane borowski who was stabbed so all sorts of crazy things coming up hope you enjoy this one today but now you're on the edge of cults ideologies and politics with carlin borisenko and aaron smith levin what makes for an effective cult? What are the good ones that really kind of suck people in and and get them endeared to their glorious cult leader so that they never leave and they leave all their friends and family behind and they give the... How, how do I get people to give me all their money is really the question. <laughs> <laughs> that That's really interestingly put. And, and the reason is like while I was starting this whole channel and interview, it wasn't just cult people, but it's become a little bit more like people who've been in cults or people, you know, who have started their own cults or whatever it might be. Uh, I was also, while I was looking into this at the beginning, I was going on um, like YouTube courses, how to be a YouTuber. So what you're saying, how to get money basically and how to grow like a big channel and all these kinds of things. And it was amazing how many crossovers there were between like becoming a big YouTuber and the cult leader stuff. So it was basically each day was a new lesson I was supposed to learn. And one of them would be like icons, right? So the stuff behind me, those lights, as soon as anybody tunes in, they see those lights, okay? Those are my lights, they're my 
McDonald's arches or the Scientology blue building or whatever it might be. Uh, <laughs> then there's like rituals, which I don't do too much, but a lot of podcasters do. Uh, and sometimes I don't think they're doing it on purpose. I don't think people consciously do it, uh, but they would, you know, uh, my friend, Dr. Shaham Das calls himself, you know, hello, you're with the ominous Shahominus, right? And that's his thing that he says. And I started saying to people, you're on the edge, you know, thanks for being on the edge or whatever it might be. There are particular language things, uh, in-jokes, the unwoke cult leader might be one of the in-jokes for, for example. So all these things, they really do cross over into, I think, any kind of business and any kind of um, uh, YouTuber or, or cult, I, I think. Aaron, what, 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 do you, what would you say to that? To which exactly? To everything, to, to, to YouTubers <laughs> being, to YouTubers being, Aaron wasn't listening. No, I'm joking. Well, but, no, no, I um, was, I was. But if, I, I thought maybe there was one final point you made that you're asking me to respond to. I mean, the first thing you got to do is make sure none of your members think they're in a cult. Because that is one thing all cults have in common. None of them think they're in a cult. And that well, is just, I, I yeah. think that ship has sailed. They're, they're all congratulating <laughs> themselves on being in the cult right now. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you think you're in a cult, you're probably not. <laughs> no, I don't know. I'm not sure it works that way. Um, you know, there's my answer for, well, I guess the, the, there's two different things. You're asking, like, what would make it a cult? What I think makes Scientology a cult specifically is specific how it destroys families. And, and that's uh, tied intimately into what happens to you when you try to leave. Um, you know, that's more of a, approaching the answer from a very personal perspective. If Scientology didn't destroy families, uh, I'd have to figure out what really is objectionable about Scientology beyond maybe other organized religion. You know, like maybe if all organized religion is objectionable, fine. Um, uh, and yet what, what is uniquely um, destructive about Scientology is the effect it has on the family unit. Uh, now, now there's the real answer, like from Steve Hassan's book, Combating Cult Mind Control, that goes back to what um, he calls the bite model. And I think I've got these items correct. It's behavior. Um, controlling your behavior, controlling your access to information, controlling your thoughts and controlling your emotions. And I think one of the most obvious red flags is when, when, when the organization tries to control what information its members are allowed to have access to about the organization, I mean, you're pretty much in a cult right there. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're, you know, like even I can think of, well, I don't want to name any individuals, um, but even some very polarizing people on the far left and the far right, even if you think those people are in a way part of their own special cult, I can think of examples of people who you would put in that bucket, but they do expose themselves to information on the other side and are willing to hear it, are willing to engage with it, are willing to debate it. And, and, and if you are willing, if you're allowed to expose yourself to critical information about your own group, you're probably not in a cult. I mean, so, I mean, and in Scientology, they, they, at least it's frowned upon to read anything negative about Scientology, though it seems kind of, it seems that people do still consume content that they're not supposed to because then they get upset about it at some point. And you probably hear about it, Aaron, on your channel when someone's upset about something you said, but they're not really supposed to watch that stuff, right? It is forbidden. I mean, if you do it, you have to own up to it and and like it is forbidden you are not allowed like no one will ever say okay fine just go watch one episode of leah remini scientology in the aftermath and then and then come back and we'll tell you what was wrong with it no you're in trouble if you watched it in the first place mm -hmm. <laughs> they, mm -hmm. they will then tell you what was wrong with it but it was not okay for you to have watched it in the first place um you know it, like literally it's forbidden 
Mm. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of um, one of my first ever episodes was with a, a former Hasidic uh, Jewish woman who, who who eventually left with her family, which was which was no easy thing. But for a long time, she had somehow found somebody to install uh, Wi-Fi. I think it was in her house that her husband didn't know about because had he known about it, he would have obviously reported her or whatever it might be. And she was then able to watch things that criticised. Uh, the religion or the cult, I would, I think, I'd call Hasidic Judaism a cult. I've been, I've been shouted at a lot by people for doing that, but I mean, I think it is one. Um, and then someone got in touch just a few days ago who also used to be a Hasidic Jew, and she messaged saying, "I just watched your your video with Emily, and I can't believe it. I knew Emily. I used to babysit for her children, and she's used. She lent me her internet. It was the first time I got internet. We weren't supposed to, and that's how I that started me and my journey." to getting out so I, amazing sort of crossovers there i mean and yeah and, and we're gonna go have a conversation on your channel andrew in a little bit where we're gonna talk about our political parties occult and of course you know i mean how i started with all of this is i was a democrat for 20 years was completely indoctrinated by my political ideology and then had that that kind of moment where i woke up and i was like something's not right here and i started then that started me on my journey so we can you know kind of pick that apart in a minute but it seems as though you know people do have those moments where they kind of wake up and realize this might not be what i thought it was this might not be the best thing for me and aaron you grew up in scientology and so i guess how did you come to that realization that things were not probably as they should be (sighs) You know, my path out of Scientology wasn't one that had like a, oh, no, this is all BS moment. Um, It's almost like so like what happened to Ridge? I'll give you like the the elevator pitch version here. (laughs) My mom got kicked out for talking smack about David Miscavige. And then they came to me and basically said, well, you're you got to disconnect from your mom or you're out, too. And so essentially I was like, I basically for two years just lied saying I disconnected from my mom when I really wasn't. And people kept sort of finding out that I wasn't. And after two years, they were kind of like, all right, this asshole is just going to keep lying to us. All right, you're out. And so then they go to my wife and they're like, okay, well, you have to divorce your husband or you're going to be out. And she's like, you know, we have three kids. Can I give you all the reasons why that's not going to work for me? And then they're like, okay, then you're out. And then they go to her parents and they say, you have to um, disconnect from your daughter and your three granddaughters or you're out. Okay. So uh, in that sense, even though uh, there was a moment when I started to question everything, that's not necessarily what led to me leaving Scientology. Um, And and I think more to answer your specific question though. So in 2009, so in 2009, I would have been what, 29? Yeah, 29. a series of articles came out with a bunch of former Scientology managers, like executives, people who in Scientology are like celebrities, you know, it, it'd be like, you know, the Elon Musk's of Scientology, <laughs> <laughs> that these people not only had left the C organization, not only had left Scientology, but were now speaking out about the abuses at international management. Well, that for me was like, uh, hold up. Whoa. The, uh, like that for me was a major uh, turning point. But that was more just about the organization itself, not the belief system or not the philosophy or whatever. It really wasn't even until years later that I started to go, oh, wait, maybe maybe Scientology itself is bullshit. Maybe L. Ron Hubbard was bullshit. And, uh, and coming to that realization was really a product of speaking with some of these former senior managers and learning more and more about it. Um, 
and that's that's the elevator version. I, I want to ask you more about that real quick, because, you know, for people that have been watching my channel for a while, they, they kind of assume that I just like woke up and went to a Donald Trump rally and decided to leave the Democratic Party like in an instant. Whereas the how it actually worked for me was I I some crazy nonsense started happening in my knitting community. I was perturbed by it. I started watching all sorts of videos of people who disagreed with me. I was like, oh my God, I've been lied to. And it, it took over like six months for me to kind of work through the cognitive dissonance of you've been lied to your whole life. This is not what you think it is. And then you kind of have these moments, or at least I had these moments where you go back and forth where you're like, this is absolutely corrupt and I don't want to be a part of it. But then no, all my friends and family are a part of it. And I don't really want to leave everything I've ever known. And so it it was for me a process to kind of work through leaving and i and i and i i don't even think i was in a, in a position like you were where i hadn't grown up in this and have it be all my friends my family everything i've ever known was it a long process for you to kind of work through the dissonance no <laughs> <laughs> you're more decisive than i am <laughs> for me um Working through the dissonance was actually very quick and very easy, but it was also completely separate from any concept of actually leaving the organization or or getting or or getting expelled or declared you know expelled from Scientology, declared a suppressive person. Even when I was completely disabused of the truth of Scientology, I still had no interest in being uh, declared a suppressive person or expelled. Right? Like I didn't hold it against all my Scientologist friends and, and family that I no longer believed. Like it was them who would hold it against me. It wasn't me who was holding it against them. Mm. So it's not like I would wake up in the morning and go, you know, I think this is all bullshit. I just wish I could get expelled today. I, 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 at that time, in that frame of mind, I had no desire or plans to ever be expelled. I was fine on just living under the radar, being a, a non-believer and continuing to exist in the Scientology ecosystem. You know, I worked for a Scientologist. My wife worked for a Scientologist. My kids went to a Scientology school. Their friends were Scientologists. All my friends were Scientologists. My wife's whole family Scientologists. There was nothing about losing my belief in Scientology that made me feel like, oh boy, I just really got to get myself expelled. <laughs> I can I can really relate to that because you know I grew up in, as a secular Jewish person went to Hebrew school on Sundays I had to learn Hebrew and all that stuff and then you know we'd have to go to synagogue a couple times a year right but nobody believed in any of the stuff like nobody in the synagogue like obviously there were some people like I didn't even know but everyone I knew they didn't believe in any, any of the that that Jewish stuff but they were just there for the community and it was very important that I was like sat next to my mum and that she didn't turn up like without someone there and I started to feel that pressure as a 15 year old of like like I'm, I don't want to come as like you know window dressing that's not the right word but like as, as some sort of decorative feature for you to show the community uh, which was you know part of why I broke out of that that sort of that that need to be but but no one believed it which I, I wonder if that begs the question you know I, and I think Erin and I are discussing this next week as well about Nixium, because Nixium was a, a cult that was very similar to Scientology in many, many ways, but didn't seem to have the religious side of it that Erin was saying he, he stopped believing in. But nonetheless, people were still going to Nixium all the time. There wasn't even a belief system there, but the cult was so powerful, it kept them there. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. 
on What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn dot com slash heretics to learn more. So was it like a social system? Was it social cohesion that kept them there? Aaron, what do you what do you think? Oh, for the Nexium? Well, here's the thing. You're saying there wasn't a religious element, and that's true, but you could also say the same thing about Scientology in that they do not see L. Ron Hubbard as being a supreme being or a messiah or anything. And the way the people in Nexium talk about and treat Keith Ranieri is the same uh, way Scientologists talk about and treat L. Ron Hubbard. Oh, he's just a man who's come up with these amazing ideas. And it's like, yes, but you think his opinion on everything is the ultimate and final truth, although they don't take the next step and explain, but why? Why have you jumped from believing something this guy said was good to believing everything this guy says is infallible? And um, I haven't heard anyone in the next CM, I'm only like halfway through the first season of The Vow, I haven't heard anybody give anything greater than just a superficial explanation for why was Keith Rainier supposed to be so special? Mm. <sighs> and- Isn't it fascinating the people who become cult leaders? Because oftentimes there, there's nothing particular. Like, you need L. Ron Hubbard to look at him, to be honest. He's not much to look at. I would say the same thing at Keith Rainier. And it's like, what is it about these people that draws people in? <laughs> it is the utter confidence with which they say everything. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it's almost hypnotic. 
Um, uh, it's funny you mentioned L. Ron Hubbard being nothing to look at. I, it was probably I'd probably been in Scientology for decades before I saw a moving like a, a video of him where he's moving and, and saw like a non-touched up photo of him. And I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, shit. That's our, I, remember, I remember going, fuck, that's our guy? God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. But, but I, John, John Atak, another former Scientologist, I remember him saying to me that, that, uh, that, that yeah, you couldn't be near Hubbard. Not, not that I think John ever met him, but you couldn't be near him because of the, the stink, because he didn't brush his teeth, didn't believe in toothpaste and stuff. His teeth rotted in, in his head, basically, and getting near him was a, was a horrible thing to smell. Well, I've never heard Mike Rinder say it was that bad, but his teeth are pretty busted. They were pretty busted. I was, I, I've seen some yeah. of the like, I, I think it was like the HBO documentary. I was like, oh, dude, like, come on. Mm-hmm. Um, so what type of person do you guys think might be susceptible for being brought into a call? Now, Aaron, you were raised in it, so this might be a little bit different. But it seems to me there, there is like a certain type of person that might be susceptible to, you know, someone like L. Ron Hubbard or Keith Raniere being the almighty thing that they look up to. What are they missing in their lives that they're kind of bringing themselves into the cult to for Phil. Well, it, it certainly seems like one thing they all have in common is a genuine desire to improve themselves, mm. you know, which can be sort of intrinsically tied to some sort of dissatisfaction with their present condition. You know, you've got these two things like some sort of dissatisfaction, but a genuine belief and desire that it can be improved. I mean, in fact, when Scientology is trying to get people in, um, they have, well, there's a million different scales in Scientology, but one of them they call the awareness scale. And, and the point on the awareness scale at which someone is considered to be ready to get into Scientology is um, demand for change or need for change. And if someone's not looking to change or improve themselves, then they're not really susceptible to being lured into one of these groups that uh, markets itself as the only and one true way to genuinely and honestly improve yourself permanently i mean that's i think that's fair to say Hmm. i wonder how much yeah i I was recently at do you know Darren brown the magician no i don't know him oh you guys are gonna love him you gotta look on like netflix Mm -hmm. he's like he's probably he's one of the most sort of famous british people and he's a magician mentalist as well so i suppose david Blaine a bit similar but he does a lot more psychological well I guess he, they both do psychological things so he's done for example you know I did that exorcism documentary so he's done this thing where he gets people up and he says like I'm not religious I don't have any powers but I'll show you how how this is done and he gets people up who are like blind or can't walk uh, and he says right I fixed you you can read now and he gets them to read stuff out and they're like what and he fixes their legs and they can walk and like their back pain goes away and like I don't know how he does it he's a genius but he says all of this is very you know secular I'm using tricks, psychological tricks and things, uh, things like that. But I went to see him recently and was in the audience and he does all these things before getting people up on the stage. He does this thing where he gets you to put, I think it's quite an old, you know, hip, hypnotist trick. You put your hands together. I, I've got these like mittens on, by the way, that, that are like, um, they've got heaters in them. So I look a bit weird. I might, uh, maybe I'd, <laughs> that's how cold it is. Like Britain's got, the economy's gone so bad now that like no one can afford heating that we've got to you heat the person, not the not the room but uh anyway he gets you to put your hands together like that the whole audience so you're talking ten thousand people uh and he'll say loads of stuff you're feeling them get close together close together mm-hmm. and then you can't you can't take them apart now i wanted that to work on me because I, I really wanted to have the feeling of like what must it be like to not be able to move my hands apart but when it finally came time to do it it was just it, they just came apart and it was really annoying i thought oh what a shame 
how it, the people who still had their hands up together at the end of this had to stay standing and then Darren would say to them like okay you guys come up to the stage and that's who he did oh. all his tricks on so these are the most susceptible people it doesn't mean what I think everyone's thinking is oh these people are stupid these people it's apparently it's nothing and I've heard Darren Brown talk about this he says it's nothing to do with intelligence it's nothing it's just they're susceptible in a very particular way which I wonder if might also work with cults I don't know I, I've always wondered about the hyp- hypnotism, hypnosis, whether it's ever real or not. And um, uh, I have heard that people, like n- people who knew L. Ron Hubbard before he actually, you know, created Scientology, that he was actually a very skilled hypnotist. Um, Doesn't surprise even, me. Even in um, the biography, unauthorized biography, uh, Barefaced Messiah, um, they said, yes, yeah, some of the other members of the Explorers Club, where L. Ron Hubbard was a member in New York, would say, yeah, Hubbard would come in and he'd freaking hypnotize up a few people. He was like an expert at it. There so um, I've also heard former Scientologists say, you know, there's, a, there's some, uh, the repetitive nature of some forms of Scientology auditing instills some sort of a hypnotic trance, mm. which I'm not in a position to, uh, you know, refute, um, other than the fact that there's many different kinds of auditing and they're not all repetitive so then what does that mean for the other kinds of auditing like i don't know it's a whole it's a whole field of study i just have not really engaged in but um so in what you did andrew so the people who uh couldn't separate their hands afterwards those the way the story so those people who are more predisposed to being hypnotized and did you get the sense that those people were legitimately suffering from the effects or, or experiencing the effects of hypnotism or are they just playing along well, that's that's something again. I've heard Darren talk about, and he says he's not even entirely sure. You know, he he's tried to get hypnotized so that he knows what it's like, and he can't himself oh, he do can't it. He can't be hypnotized. He can't be hypnotized. But what he—it's like people again. It's the cognitive dissonance. People seem, and I think everyone experiences being hypnotized differently. Uh, it seems to be uh, some sort of cognitive dissonance where they both know that this is something they're playing along with but they also can't escape it. So it's the weirdest thing. And, but, but, but at the same time, I mean, he does these amazing tricks and some of it is just sleight of hand. But there was a point towards the end, well, I'm not supposed to talk about it, he said, don't tell anyone about it, but where he seemed to have hypnotized the entire audience because we all felt like, okay, it's only a tiny percentage can be hypnotized. And he got a guy up on stage and he kept doing things in front of the person, basically. He'd hypnotize him, like click his fingers. The guy would go into sort of a deep whatever, but still watching. And then Darren would just go and like move a thing and then come back and wake him up. And the guy's like, where's the thing gone? And he's like, and the, the audience laughs, right? It's funny because we're like, we saw Darren move it. And the guy who was hypnotized is going, where's it gone? And all this stuff. Who knows to what extent he's really playing along. At the end of the show, he did a thing, Darren, where we all seemed to suddenly be like, hang on, where's the thing? And he was like, you saw that, didn't you? To everyone, and the whole audience start murmuring and we're going, hang on. But I'm pretty sure that was a sleight of hand thing. It wasn't really a hypnosis thing. So I think the, the I think some people do genuinely seem to just like miss out on those times through being hypnotized mm. uh, and some sort of play along because you're on stage you know you're, you're really you know he's saying do this do that you know you're going to ruin the whole show if you don't 
So you go along with it to an extent. <laughs> well, I, I do think there is something to the to the uh, idea that Aaron brought up earlier earlier though, which is people looking for um, you know self improvement in some way. And I'm thinking back to a week long meditation retreat I did with Joe Dispenza several years ago now, back when I was still kind of like a runner, and I actually had physical healing from that meditation retreat. I had had a running injury that had gotten exacerbated when I was training for a marathon, and it had made it impossible for me to run. I went to every sports medicine doctor I could find. No one could fix it. And I had really at that point given up on the idea of being able to run distances again. And, you know, I'm, I don't anymore. But like, you know, at that time, I was really upset about it because I loved running marathons. I thought it was really fun. And I went to this meditation retreat and we, you know, there are a lot of people there that were working on physical healing. And at some point during the retreat, we did this meditation where I got really deep into flow and my legs started shaking. And I don't know what happened, but when I came out of it, I was like, oh my God, what happened? And I ran right to the the hotel gym and I got on the treadmill and I just started running and the, the injury did not flare up at all. And it, it wow. even for weeks after that, you know, I kind of still had him in the back of my head. Is the injury really gone? Is the injury really gone? Is it really gone? And it has not flared up you know, since when I went, even when I was running after that, it didn't flare up again, you know, ever as bad as it was before that. And then there was another guy at that meditation retreat where this guy was in a wheelchair the entire time. And then on one of the last days of the retreat, we did a walking meditation where we're out in like the desert in New Mexico. And you're supposed to walk as the person that you wanted to be. And this guy who had been in a wheelchair all week had someone behind him that was like rolling the wheelchair, but he was up and he had a cane in each hand and he just was like slowly putting the canes and walking as the person he wanted to be. And I passed him at the beginning and then I rounded back and passed him again at the end. And instead of using his canes to support him, he was holding a cane in each hand and he was just marching along. And it was honestly one of the most inspiring things I've seen because I was like, that guy was in a wheelchair all week. He was not walking at all. And here he is walking as the person he wants to be. And so I do think there's something to the idea of if you can see yourself as that person you can become that person. I don't know specifically the neuropsychology or neuroscience behind it, but to me, there's some there there. Hmm. I don't know. Aaron, what do you think, Aaron? Maybe I was indoctrinated into the meditation cult. Well, part of me makes me uh, wants to ask, are you sure he wasn't a ringer in there? But, uh, <laughs> I <was thinking> that. <laughs> but I do, I do genuinely believe that in order for any of this to work, for any of these cult leaders to succeed, their members have to, on some level, want this to be true, yeah. want this to work. I mean, um, Scientology auditing is an interesting example where, and all, all Scientologists know this, and unless you point this out to them, they're not, they're not going to see the, 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 how insane this is. Scientology itself says that in order for Scientology work, auditing to work, the person receiving auditing has to be a willing and participant, a, a willing, a, a willing and eager participant. And that doing auditing against someone's will would obviously prevent it from working. And it wasn't until afterwards, thinking back on it, that I'm like, do you realize how fucking ridiculous that sounds? Because at the same time, Scientologists will also say auditing always works 100% of the time without exception <laughs> when applied 100% perfectly. And I go, when applied to someone who wants it to work, like that's not how science works. <laughs> Right. Well, so, well, well and, and it sort of is. A lot of money for the privilege. <laughs> so uh, that's yeah, that's the issue. <laughs> right. 
So, but it's not like a medicine. You can give someone medicine against their will and the medicine will help them. Scientologists mm -hmm. consider the effectiveness of auditing to be equal to or senior to something like a medication. And yet at the same time, they're saying it won't work if you try to apply it to someone who's uncooperative or unwilling. And you're like, well, you've kind of defeated your own claim there, but they don't see it. So I guess all I'm saying is even auditing, they, you have to want it to work. And when you consider the strength of the placebo effect, uh, just all on its own, and the fact that not wanting auditing to work literally disqualifies you as someone who could possibly benefit from it. Um, that's kind of what I mean when I say, I think on some level, and this is true when you watch the Nexium stuff, they want Keith Raniere to be special. They mm -hmm. want everything they're doing to have some greater meaning. Um, and it's why also when they see red flags, they want those red, they want to ignore their red flags. Do you know what I mean? So that's mm -hmm. kind of, I mean, it has an interesting sort of analogy there to the hypnotism where do you have to, well, that's, I'm, I'm more curious. Do you have to want the hypnotism to work in order for it to work? I've never been hypnotized. I've never seen someone hypnotized other than in a show. And you never know if the show is just being produced you know well so so yeah i i'm really interested in carl and what you were saying about the meditation as well and for the same reasons erin as, as what you're saying when i did that exorcism film again the most interesting part for me was that the the it was three different women who were exercised while i was there and who i helped to exercise and they they all got better immediately and as erin says you know they all wanted to be helped and they all knew exactly what was supposed to happen it would be interesting to get someone to go in blind you know and not know what's an exorcism i've never heard of an exorcism and then put them down and you go on top of them like the power of god the power of god and then see like they'll just be like what are you doing you know but they all knew to go like ah and start screaming and stuff um the interesting thing that they found with placebo though so firstly is like if you you can give uh like uh, somebody with parkinson's you can give them a sugar pill you know a placebo pill and you can actually see the dopamine and whatever else produced in their brain from it that will uh you know calm the symptoms and things like that it's actually it's incredible uh and the most incredible part of that is you can even tell them by the way this is a fake pill this is just a sugar pill and it still works mm -hmm. so that's how incredible it is even knowing it's fake it's that can still work that's how powerful placebo is so i i think i don't i don't obviously don't know with your meditation uh carlin and, and i don't know what it's like to be exercised or hypnotized but it, it just seems like the power of placebo is really quite an extraordinary drug and that brings up the moral question you know if it's helping people as long as it's not damaging them in other ways, maybe it's a it's a good thing. That's something I had to confront with the exorcist, who I who I decided was doing a lot of horrible other things. So it's still a net a net negative for yeah. Society. I I mean, for my meditation retreat, listen, I can't I can't uh, eliminate the possibility that the guy in the wheelchair was you know a plant or something like that. But I can say for me it really did heal an injury I had. And and for um, a couple of friends of mine that I met there too, they really did have kind of the same experience. And even for months afterwards, if I was like on the treadmill at the gym or something, I would be repeating in my head just the mantra of like, I am a person that can run without pain. I'm a person that can run and, and feel good and stuff like that. And it really did work and help. And I think that there is something to be said for the fact that, you know, we can become the person that we see ourselves as. And there are some groups that will do that and, and support you just because, you know, 
they they are doing it from a self-help perspective there are some groups that will do that to exploit you to take your money and to cut you off from your entire family and so for from my perspective if something works and it makes people's lives better and it doesn't you know destroy relationships or anything like that like there are no nefarious intents you know more power to you whatever works for you um I think the the line that cults cross, though, and Aaron, you brought this up earlier, is trying to eliminate the relationships of family and friends, cutting off those social ties, um, using nefarious tactics to basically, you know, take all your money. I mean, Scientology will like help you open a million credit cards so you have a million different credit lines to spend on their products that you probably don't need in the first place um, and, and things like that. And I think that's where it gets a little fishy to me. Yep, I agree. <laughs> and, th and that's why I say that's why I always come back for me to the, the destruction of families. I don't care if you want to believe in Xenu or exercise body thetan six times a day for 10 years. I, I could not possibly care less. It's what they do with that. And that's where you really get to like intentions and motivations, because technically speaking, you could figure out how to operate this cult of Scientology without doing the, the family destroying part. And, and yet they do. <laughs> You know why I mean? do you think why do you think they do that? Why do they perceive that to be a necessary element of their organization? I just think it's built into the DNA of the organization that the way to protect the organization from criticism is to mm -hmm. cut off the criticism. They haven't actually figured out how to just deal with the criticism. And you know, there's many like uh, multi. I, I find multi-level marketing to be pretty similar, pretty culty. Um, and I'm, I'm bringing, I'm mentioning that because. There's one particular organization I was uh, I knew some people who were involved with it, and this particular organization was just really really good at tackling head on the accusations that they were a pyramid scheme and a cult, and mm -hmm. they didn't like chastise their members for associating with people that thought they were in a pyramid scheme or a cult. They were just really really good at dealing with those accusations. Now this was a pyramid scheme. <laughs> <laughs> and it's debatable whether it was a cult, but I'm just using that as an example where it's a different approach. They have an approach of, um, you know, meet your criti uh, meet the person who's criticizing you and and deal with it. Scientology's approach really has been because it's what uh, how L. Ron Hubbard laid it laid it down, which is those are evil people. They're either evil or they're closely connected to evil, and it's dangerous to continue that association. Uh, and, and L. Ron Hubbard was extremely consistent with that messaging from the, the earliest days of Scientology. So the organization in some ways is incapable of changing that um, just on a policy level. But theoretically speaking, you could take that part out of Scientology and you know, continue to make money and, and not destroy families. But, you know, they don't, and that's why I believe they are worthy of exposure and not worthy of tax exemption. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder if they, I, I wonder if they'd fall apart without that. I'm thinking of like we'll get onto the political stuff, I guess, in the next bit. But I was thinking about, you know, I used to live in Berlin, and the Stasi was a big thing back in the whenever it was, you know, before the wall fell. Uh, and that, they also did that same thing of you know tearing apart families, so families would inform on one another. That was a big part of their long-term game plan and i suppose it it's the basic divide and conquer just keep everyone divided nobody's gonna you know otherwise you get a big group a big family group who says hey we're not going to be part of this we've had a big talk and we, instead you're getting one family member is spying on another and the other one's spying on them and they don't even realize and everyone's at odds with each other and then the stasi stayed in control for longer as a result huh 
All right. So I want to ask you guys a question. I want to list some attributes for you of an organization that I think everyone is familiar with. And I want to ask you two if you would classify this organization as a cult basically uh, based purely on the attributes I'm about to list. All right. Ready? Okay. They take your money. They take your they compel your children to attend the organization for six hours a day, five days a week. They they write into policy that they are allowed to make decisions on behalf of the children that you may or may not be informed of. And you really don't have any recourse to change what they are teaching your children. Is this a cult? Wait, wait, don't answer, Aaron, because it's a trap. Because, because you, you need to, because Carlin is a, a famed libertarian. So this is bound to be about uh, the governments in general, just any government. Is that the, what it is? Maybe public, a very specific. Maybe it's very specific. Go, Aaron. This is the public school system, right? It is the public school system. (laughs) It is the public school system. I'm just saying. (laughs) I I didn't want Aaron accidentally calling something a cult when he wasn't fully informed of what the thing might be. I mean, it it is true that they they do use that. I mean, that's the first thing that Mao did. It's the first thing Stalin did. They went straight for the kids at school and indoctrinated them against their own parents again breaking up the families so so that is a you know it's, it's very potentially culty any school system that that is very true it's also the only place that most people will actually experience physical violence in their lives is fun fact in the public school huh. that's a good point <laughs> wow um, all right gentlemen well we are about to wrap up this segment and head over to andrew's channel for part two and just to let everyone in the chat know you will automatically in theory be directed to (laughs) andrew's channel um to join us for part two of the discussion and i would definitely encourage everyone to do so if you are not automatically redirected i did put a link in the description as well as pinned to the top of the chat on youtube i just want to get you know some final thoughts on you know what is what what is an effective cult we've talked about um eliminating social ties uh taking all your money uh not not um not allowing you to view any forms of criticism is there anything else that you would add to the list and what what i guess maybe some thoughts on what should people do if they find themselves entrapped in an organization like that so my opinion on the first part of that question is that there's definitely um you have to have some element of superiority to all non-members Mm. right um that seems to really be a common theme and 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 somehow it's also related to the idea that you really want this person that you're looking at as a leader you really do want them to be very very special because otherwise where does your superiority as a group come from um you know as far as uh, it's very uh, answering the second part of that question is very difficult if not sometimes impossible uh, I know in Scientology, the way I've helped people approach it uh, has to do with kind of feeling the person out. Well, because Scientology is a little unique in that it has the upper confidential levels that members don't really know what's on there. So something that, has some, that is sometimes workable is asking that person if what is in popular culture about those levels is true. And their knee-jerk reaction will be, no, that's ridiculous. And you go, well, hold on now. You don't know what's on the levels. How can you know that that's not it? And Because the, and, the, the real answer is they don't know. But what they do know is that what they're hearing, they think it's ridiculous. Oh, sorry. But then you can use that against them a little bit. Wait a second. So you don't know what's on the levels, but you do know 
that if what's really on the levels is the stuff you're hearing, it sounds like you'd be really disappointed in that. And then they sort of have to confront the fact yeah. that, yeah, that really would be really disappointing. <laughs> and you're like, but yet you don't know. What if it is true? Now you've planted a very important seed. <laughs> and and you've you've done tricks like that on your channel, Aaron, where you you have talked about the clear cognition on your channel, and it's it's like what is the clear cognition? Something like I always had control over this in the first place, and that's what you have to say yeah. to be considered it, clear. It's <laughs> I, I, I just realized I've been I've been mocking up my own reactive mind all along, and I'm not doing <laughs> it anymore. <laughs> that's it. it. If you say that, you're clear. I love it. I love, I love it. You have yeah. to say the last part. You have to say, and I'm not doing it anymore. It's not implied. You have to oh. say. Oh, excellent. Andrew, any final thoughts before we head over to your channel? Yeah, I, I think I think what Aaron just said is great. And it reminds me of a, a former guest of mine, Peter Bogosian. He uses this thing called street epistemology. And he basically just says to anyone who's got an extreme belief one way or another that might be influenced by a cult or ideology, he says, like, where are you on that belief out of 10? So, you know, where are you on on a belief out of 10 that, that uh, L. Ron Hubbard is is the best person ever or whatever? And let's say, I mean, I guess they might say 10, you know. And if it's, if it's 10, he's like, well, there's not really much I can do here. But if it's 9... He's like, okay, well, what would have to happen for you to be at an eight? What would you have to hear and realize is like new information that you didn't know before? That so, just like Aaron said, you know, what? Yeah, what would have to be in the levels? What would have to be a secret thing that actually is just like in South Park and they were right? You know, what would bring you down to an eight or a seven? But the other thing I'm always hearing is like it just it would it would be infinitely better for Aaron to go in and do it than for me or you, Carlin, just because of that shared history and frame of reference. So, I mean, I, as someone I used to speak to who unfortunately passed away is Jesse Morton, who uh, became an Islamic terrorist. Uh, and then he worked for the rest of his life trying to take people away from that. And he was just so much better at it than we could ever be. So there's that. And I would say something I suppose we can continue talking about in the next one now, because it's so related to politics and stuff, especially as well, but all cults as well, is secrets, just having secrets. And again, what Aaron was saying about the different la um, layers of it, the different tiers that's hidden from you, that secret stuff is, is the culty stuff. Thank you, Carlin and Aaron Smith-Levin for doing that. It was originally done as a live on one of our channels. I'm not even sure which. There's a second part next week. We chat all about the differences between politics and cult ideologies and magical thinking. Basically, the bread and butter of this show. Coming up are episodes with the likes of Helen Lewis and Emma Thorne, the atheist. Um, there's some stuff about Katie Holmes coming up and Nixium as well. And I hope you enjoy. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.